0: On May 11th, 2020, an important historical discovery concerning the United States military history was announced that went largely unnoticed by the wider public because of the COVID-19 pandemic that was sweeping the globe. Search Inc., the largest underwater and terrestrial archeology span firm in the United States, working with underwater robotics company Ocean Infinity, announced the discovery of the wreck of the American battleship USS Nevada BB-38, almost 72 years after the warship was sunk as a target. However, no one should mistake such an inglorious end to the ship's life as a reflection on its time in the service with the US Navy. On the contrary, Few ships can claim to have had such a glorious career rising to the challenges put before it and playing an instrumental role in helping the US Navy modernize to meet the challenges of 20th century naval combats. This is the story of the legend of the ship the enemy simply could not sink. Welcome to Wars of the World. It's difficult for the modern mind to truly fathom just how profound an impact the Industrial Revolution had on the world at large. In military circles, and especially the world's navies, it resulted in a modernization program so rapid that often new designs were authorized for construction that incorporated all the latest advancements, only to be rendered obsolete by even newer advancements by the time they entered service. In 1870, Sail was still the primary means of propulsion, with a few warships being fitted with rudimentary steam engines to power them in and out of port, regardless of wind direction, which often hampered all sail vessels if the wind was not favorable for departure. However, by 1900, the few sailing ships left were either the exception or were being converted to or replaced by all steam power. Steam-powered ships were faster and more maneuverable on the water, both huge advantages to a warship, but a warship also needed to be armed to destroy enemy ships and armored to prevent an enemy from sinking it. As the sails went, so too did the banks of cannons, which were replaced by fewer, but much larger and more powerful guns mounted in turrets and aimed using more advanced targeting sites. Experiments in how to mount these weapons led to some quirky gun arrangements and mixtures of armament sizes, both of which proved almost wholly ineffective. Then in 1906, the British Royal Navy introduced a warship that would set the standard for all battleships to come. The moment HMS Dreadnought was commissioned into service, it was so revolutionary that it rendered all other capital ships obsolete. Dreadnought adopted an all big gun approach to firepower, mounted in rotating turrets, all but one of which could be trained to either side of the ship, depending on the target's location. The ship also adopted more advanced targeting devices and was encased in very heavy armor along the hull and turrets. None of these innovations were themselves entirely new, but Dreadnought incorporated these advancements and many more in a single hull for the first time. Navies around the world quickly scrambled to get their own ships equivalent to Dreadnoughts into service, sparking a new arms race to produce what we now call the Dreadnoughts in honor of the first ship. The first American Dreadnought was the USS South Carolina, which, amazingly, was not only even more advanced than Dreadnought, particularly concerning weapon layouts with all its guns mounted on the center line, allowing it to put all its firepower on a single target, but it was actually conceived of before Dreadnought. It missed out on being the first Dreadnought design due to a significantly delayed construction time. America, Britain, France, Germany, and Japan were now solely focusing on building Dreadnought-type capital ships for their fleets, if not for any specific military requirements, then simply for the prestige of owning the most capable battleship. As a result, more innovation and improvements were incorporated into newer battleships, but designing these complex warships was not simply a case of bigger is better. Battleships functioned on three basic principles, mobility, firepower and protection. However, often one of these principles had to be sacrificed to improve the other two, and in battleships, that often meant agility. The general thinking was that while these heavily armed and protected warships were relatively slow and clumsy to handle, they could dish out enough firepower to sink an enemy warship before sustaining enough hits to threaten it with sinking. Nevertheless, naval engineers worked tirelessly to get around these problems, coming up with innovative solutions but for every solution to one problem, new problems arose. Given the increasing range and striking power of high explosive and armor-piercing shells, it was soon realized that while traditional thinking emphasized heavy armor on the vertical sides of the ship, the higher trajectories of these new shells meant that it was just as likely that the ship could be hit on top of the main hull, where protection was relatively light. This was proven at the Battle of Tsushima in 1905 when the Russian fleet was decimated by the Japanese fleet and it would be proven again and again in the upcoming Great War. Unfortunately, it was not simply a case of increasing the thickness and consequently the weight of the horizontal armor on these already mammoth warships. Without building even more powerful engines than the technology of the day allowed to compensate for the extra weight, the ships would be even slower leaving them vulnerable to newer weapons such as destroyers and submarines armed with powerful, high-explosive torpedoes. Slower battleships would also in turn slow down the fleet as a whole, which would prove a major strategic handicap in carrying out operations. Therefore, American designers adopted a radical new concept in armoring ships. Previously, the armor had been spread out along the length of the hull, with the heaviest armor logically concentrated around the most important areas, such as the machinery and armaments. The rest of the ship received thin to medium armor. The new American concept dispensed with the thin to medium armor altogether and used the weight that was saved to better protect the horizontal surfaces of key areas from long range enemy shells raining down from above. The result was the creation of armored citadels around these key sections of the ship, while less critical areas such as bunk rooms were left unarmored. Every man should be at their action stations anyway. This new concept of armoring a ship was appropriately named the all or nothing approach, and the first warship to adopt it operationally was the USS Nevada. On March 4th, 1911, the US Congress authorized the construction of two new battleships, incorporating some of the recent advancements in battleship design, including the all or nothing armor configuration. The two ships named USS Nevada and USS Oklahoma would be collectively known as the Nevada class, and shortly after them, a further two ships built to an enlarged design becoming the Pennsylvania class, The two Nevada-class ships were 583 feet long, 107 foot 11 inches at their widest point and displaced 27,500 tons of water. They were heavily armed for their day, sporting 10 14-inch main guns spread out in four turrets mounted all along the ship's center line. By contrast, the earlier USS South Carolina was armed with eight 12-inch guns the Nevada's guns could hurl a 1,400-pound armor-piercing shell out to a range of 21 kilometers, compared to the earlier ship, which could fire an 870-pound shell out to just 18. Incredibly, the Nevada's range would be extended further again in subsequent modernizations, limiting the ship's range solely to what the crew on board could see. In terms of protection, at its thickest, the armor was some 13.5 inches thick along the hull, while the turrets had an additional 4.5 inches of armor surrounding them. Power for the ship came from 12 oil-fired boilers instead of the earlier coal-fired type. These helped generate 24,800 horsepower to turn the ship's propellers up to a speed of 24 miles per hour. Nevada was launched on July 11th, 1914. The US people were pleased with their advanced new warship, with many observers describing the new ship as being the first of the second generation of dreadnoughts, sometimes labeled super dreadnoughts by the press, and just as revolutionary as the British ship that came before it. Work now continued to get the ship up to service status, and this saw the fitting of the distinctive cage-style masts preferred by American designers of the time. Finally, in late 1915, the US Navy declared they were ready to receive the ship into service, and the USS Nevada was commissioned on March 11, 1916, with Captain William S. Sims in command an officer highly regarded by the American Admiralty. At that time, Europe had been set ablaze with the Great War, but the United States was still, for the time being, keeping out of the fighting, despite the sinking of the Lusitania liner, in which many Americans died just two months after Nevada was commissioned. 1916 was nevertheless a busy year for the Nevada, as Captain Sims trained his crew hard on their new battleship, which was serving with the US Navy's Atlantic Fleet, ported at Newport, Rhode Island. On December 30th, 1916, Captain Sims stood down to accept a promotion to Rear Admiral and a position at Newport Naval War College. He was replaced in command by Captain Joseph Strauss, a forward-thinking officer who had made a career out of testing new weapons for the Navy and was thus seen as ideal to command the advanced warship. Within four months, the United States finally entered the war on the side of the Allies, but against expectations, the Nevada had to initially be held back from sailing across the Atlantic to join in the fights. The problem was there was insufficient fuel stocks for the oil-burning engines of the Nevada in Britain, which at the time was being besieged by the Kaiser's U-boat fleets. This was a problem not shared by the older coal-burning battleships, which went instead. Nevada therefore had to remain close to the US East Coast throughout 1917 and well into 1918 before the ship was ordered to sail to Britain to join in the fight. Now under the command of its third captain, Andrew T. Long, the USS Nevada sailed for 10 days across the Atlantic for arriving in Bantry Bay Island, where it was soon joined by its sister, the USS Oklahoma. Initially employed in convoy escort duties, the Allied High Command decided that the Nevada and Oklahoma, with their speed and firepower, along with the USS Utah, were ideal for a special assignment. Allied intelligence believed a high-speed German surface radar was operating against convoys sailing towards the west coast of the British Isles, and they would be tasked with intercepting and destroying it. Dubbed the Bantry Bay Squadron, The three American warships painstakingly scoured the seas around the southern and western regions of Ireland in search of this elusive foe. But it would all be in vain. The Raider never materialized, leading many to speculate it simply didn't exist and was merely a creation in the fog of war. On November 11th, 1918, the Great War came to an end with Nevada not having fired a single shot against the enemy. However, this does not mean it didn't play an important role in combating the Kaiser's fleet. On the contrary, the Nevada's presence and the Allied battleship fleets as a whole did serve as a deterrence to keep the German surface fleet bottled up in their harbors in the last years of the war, preventing another bloodbath, such as happened at the Battle of Jutland in 1916, from occurring again. The ship's last duty concerning World War I was to join the flotilla assigned to protect the ocean liner George Washington as it carried President Woodrow Wilson to the Paris Peace Conference. On December 26, 1918, the Nevada sailed into New York Harbor, now under the command of its fourth captain, William Carey Cole, receiving a hero's welcome. Very quickly during and immediately after the war, as new designs were constructed, the Nevada was no longer the super dreadnought it had been in 1916, although it was still sitting on the top table. Almost every major capital ship that followed adopted its revolutionary all or nothing approach to protection, but the entire battleship concept itself was now in doubt. After centuries of capital ships being the decisive factor in naval warfare, The Great War had now shown that these complex and costly vessels were vulnerable to cheaper, smaller vessels armed with powerful torpedoes. The threat to battleships was only exacerbated by the addition of torpedo-carrying aircraft, which while still primitive, showed enormous potential for the future. Questions over the role of the capital ship were asked through the 1920s, but while the construction of battleships did slow down compared to the years leading up to the First World War, the Soviet Union would prove to be the only major power to halt construction of new battleships entirely. At the same time, the world was undertaking historic steps to limit the world's military forces, including navies, in order to prevent another arms race and war, as had happened previously. The Washington Naval Treaty of 1922 severely restricted how many warships could be retained by the signatory nations and dictated the size and armament of new ships brought in to replace older ones. In order to meet their commitments, the US Navy began scrapping some of their older warships, but Nevada was saved from this fate being still quite new and modern. The 1920s saw the ship undertake diplomatic tours of South America, visiting Peru in 1921, and then a year later, escorting the ocean liner Pan America, carrying US Secretary of State Charles Evan Hughes to Brazil. In 1925, the Nevada undertook an epic voyage to Australia and New Zealand, which as well as being a gesture of goodwill to those countries, was also intended to demonstrate to Japan that the US Navy was capable of roaming far and wide across the Pacific. While the situation with Japan wasn't yet teetering on the verge of war, Tokyo was increasingly frustrated by its treatment during the aforementioned Washington treaty and similar military restrictions, which they viewed as being designed to curtail their empire's expansion in Asia. Between 1927 and 1930, Nevada underwent a significant modernization program at the Norfolk Naval Shipyard in Virginia. The distinctive cage masts were removed and replaced with tripod ones, while the engines were replaced with those from the recently decommissioned USS North Dakota, which unlike the Nevada had not survived the Washington treaty. The 12 original boilers were replaced with six larger, more efficient ones, which combined increased range to allow the Nevada to operate more effectively in the Pacific. Other improvements saw the elevation of the main guns increased, allowing them to fire shells out to an additional 10 kilometers, giving them a firing range of 31 kilometers, while the secondary five-inch guns designed to defend against destroyers and fast attack craft were relocated above the main hull. Recognizing the threats of aircraft and submarines, new five-inch anti-aircraft guns were installed above deck while the hull was fitted with anti-torpedo bulges. These water-filled compartmentalized sponsons were designed to detonate torpedoes and absorb their explosions, helping to contain flooding to damaged areas within the bulges rather than the ship itself. Returning to service, Nevada spent the next 11 years serving in the Pacific Fleet under a succession of captains until early December, 1941, when Captain Francis W. Scanland commanded the now 25-year-old US warship into port his crew were looking forward to their first weekend in port in months and were planning to enjoy everything the seemingly idyllic Pearl Harbor had to offer. On the morning of December 7th, 1941, the USS Nevada was tied up on its starboard or right side at key F8 behind the battleship USS Arizona. Holiday routine was in effect, and many of the crew on board were enjoying a slightly longer lay-in. At 600 hours, Ensign Joseph K. Taussig Jr. was awoken to take command of the forenoon watch. Being officer of the deck on a quiet Sunday morning in port was usually a tedious experience, so Tausig racked his brain looking for something to do. It then struck him that only one boiler had been lit to power the ship since they had entered port, and therefore he decided to order another to be lit, if only to give him and the duty personnel something to do. Tausig couldn't have known it, but this simple act to relieve boredom was about to guarantee the Nevada almost legendary status in the events that followed. Expecting a routine day, Captain Scanland had left the ship in the hands of his junior officers early that morning to visit his wife. The Nevada was the northernmost ship in the so-called battleship row and was engaged in the very strict tradition of presenting its colors every morning while in port at precisely 800 hours to the accompaniment of the Star Spangled Banner, which was performed by the ship's band. Being in command of the ceremony for the first time, Taussig found he wasn't sure what size the flag should be hoisted. With only minutes left before the ceremony was to begin, he sent a sailor to their neighboring ship, the Arizona, to ask an officer there which he should use. While the band waited patiently for the sailor to return, ominous specks began to appear in the sky, but being more than a major naval facility, they assumed they were American planes undertaking training. They were not. After the sailor returned from the Arizona with the answer for Tausig, the band began playing and the flag was hoisted just as the first Japanese bombs and torpedoes began to rain down on the American ships. The attack was so sudden that the band continued playing and the flag was still being hoisted as explosions rang out. One Japanese torpedo plane flew low and fast over the rear of the Nevada but had any of the assembled sailors had time to examine it, they would have seen it was no longer clutching a torpedo. A gunner on the Japanese plane tried to machine gun the band members but missed, although he put several holes in the ship's flag. Suddenly the torpedo that had been unleashed by the Japanese plane slammed into the Arizona, which was lifted out of the water by the blast before settling in and then proceeding to sink to the bottom of the harbor. The blast was such that several men on the Nevada near the Arizona were thrown off the deck of their ship. The crew of the Nevada rushed to their battle stations. Being the most senior officer on board, Lieutenant Commander Francis J. Thomas assumed overall command of the ship while Tausig took command of the air defense batteries. The anti-aircraft guns fired furiously at the swarming Japanese planes that were devastating the American ships who were sitting ducks in the harbor. Within minutes, a Japanese plane went tumbling into the water thanks to the Nevada's guns, and many historians credit this as the first Japanese plane to be shot down by US forces that day, and consequently the first of World War II. By a stroke of luck, smoke from the burning ships around it began to obscure the Nevada from the Japanese pilots who were pressing home their attacks on Battleship Row. This afforded the crew a brief but valuable reprieve to power up the ship, many of the crew getting the ship ready to sail without receiving instructions to do so. It normally took the Nevada and ships like it as much as two hours to power up to get going. But thanks to Tausig's decision to light a second boiler, the ship was slowly generating enough steam to get mobile. Crew members rushed ashore in order to cast off the lines, tethering the ship to the harbor and freeing it, all while Japanese fighters swooped down, attempting to shoot them in the process. Despite still being under attack, despite not being at full power, despite not having all its boilers lit, despite not having any assistance from tugboats, the grand old dreadnought managed to stumble away from its berth and start limping out of the harbour, its guns still fending off Japanese planes. After the sight of the Arizona blowing up and sinking and much of the rest of the fleet burning, A new mood descended on the American defenders at seeing the Nevada getting underway in just under 45 minutes after the attack began. It was a powerful symbol that reinvigorated American grit and defiance. By simply getting moving, the Nevada with its bullet-ridden flag flapping over the stern was sending a message that while America was down at this low point, it was not out. Surviving ships blew their horns in respect to the Nevada while sailors on shore and aboard their own ships whooped and hollered as it slowly sailed through the thick plumes of smoke. But while Nevada was inspiring them to keep fighting, on board, the situation was dire. Shortly before setting off, a torpedo had struck the battleship causing heavy damage, although most gunners on board reported that they had shot this particular plane down as it attempted to escape. Shortly afterwards, a Japanese dive bomber scored a hit, throwing Ensign Tausig against a bulkhead. Looking down, he found his leg had been twisted under his arm and he would never walk on it again. Slowly making its way past the wrecked ships, including its sister ship, the Oklahoma, the Japanese pilots sense an opportunity. If the Nevada could be sunk in the outer bay leading to the harbour, it could provide a dangerous obstacle to any other ships attempting to escape. Japanese planes launched attack upon attack on the ship and Nevada took very heavy damage but kept moving and firing back. However, despite objections, Vice Admiral William S. Pye The battle force commander ordered the Nevada to give up its epic escape attempt. And with water seeping into the hull, Lieutenant Commander Thomas turned the ship toward nearby hospital points where the mighty vessel beached, bringing an end to its incredible escape. With the attack tapering off, the crew turned their attention to fighting the many fires that were raging on board as Captain Scanland returned to assume command. The fires were all largely under control by mid-afternoon, and attention turned to dealing with the many wounded on board. The Nevada wouldn't be refloated until February 12, 1942, and after temporary repairs were effected that allowed it to steam from Pearl Harbor to Washington State under its own power. While there, the ship underwent more long-term repairs and modernization, which would not be completed until October, 1942. Nevada entered the fray again in May of 1943, when it was dispatched to provide fire support for the US operation to expel Japanese troops from Attu Island. After this, the Nevada underwent another stint in port, being fitted with new equipment before transferring to the Atlantic, where after providing convoy escort against German surface raiders and aircraft, it sailed to the UK in April of 1944 to prepare for the Normandy invasion. On June 6, 1944, Nevada's guns provided fire support for the D-Day landings, as well as acting as Rear Admiral Morton Deo's flagship for the operation. Allied commanders praised the old dreadnought for incredibly accurate fire in support of troops ashore, with shells often being aimed just 600 yards in front of the advancing Allied soldiers. Nevada then headed to the Mediterranean, where it supported the invasion of Southern France between August and September of 1944 before returning to the Pacific Theater after receiving new gun barrels. After the Japanese surrendered, bringing World War II to an end, the US Navy decided it was finally time to retire the grand old dreadnought. However, this afforded the US the opportunity to test the effectiveness of their new superweapon, the Atom Bomb, against ships. Nevada was therefore used as a target ship and was painted in a distinctive reddish-orange color before being placed in the middle of a small fleet of decommissioned ships. Yet the luck of the Nevada held and the bomb fell 1.6 kilometers off target, exploding above the attack transport Gilliam instead. If surviving one nuclear attack was not enough, it survived a second nuclear test, this time from an underwater detonation. However, the tests left the ship badly damaged and irradiated, but still afloat. On July 31, 1948, the Nevada was towed out to a point 65 miles from Pearl Harbor and was used as gunnery practice for the battleship USS Iowa. Sustaining several hits, the Nevada still did not sink and it would take a torpedo to finally send the ship to the bottom of the Pacific, closing what could be described as the most defiant story in naval history. James P. DeGaldo of Search, Inc., one of the two firms that found the wreck in April 20, and former head of the Maritime Heritage Program at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, had studied iconic shipwrecks around the world, and from his research, he knew roughly where the Nevada had settled. Delgado explained that the whole project started with a chance phone call with Ocean Infinity, a marine survey and robotics company that had found several other famous wrecks around the world. The two firms discussed working together on a joint project and eventually settled on giving themselves the task of locating the Nevada. Ocean Infinity agreed to have its own vessel, the Pacific Constructor, look for Nevada's wreck based on Delgado's research, and together they found this defiant ship's final resting place. When asked why he wanted to search for the wreck, Delgado replied, ultimately, finding where most of these ships lie and looking at them again, is a reminder of the past. It connects this and future generations with those stories in a powerful way. For many of us who are archeologists, we've always known that the greatest museum we have is at the bottom of the sea.